The Bible passage uh, for the sermon this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I've requested Vasha to read it out for us. It'll come up for us on screen as well. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the sheep's shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're in the eighth week of a rather defining sermon series for us. Uh, a sermon series titled, What is the Church? Uh, if this is your first time in New City, welcome. Uh, you, the sermons that you've missed are available online uh, on YouTube and several other places. You're welcome to go back and, uh, and watch them. Uh, we've covered a fair bit of ground on this sermon series and uh, God willing, we're looking to wrap this up by Easter. But here's the central idea of this entire series. All believers of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in a covenantal lifestyle of worship, fellowship, service, engaging our culture with the gospel through meaningful membership in a local church. And this covenantal lifestyle of, of meaningful membership in the local church that Christ has called us to involves three parties. First, it involves Christ himself, the chief shepherd. Next, it involves the elders, the under-shepherds, and then members. Uh, the passage we read this morning lays out a two-way responsibility between elders and members in a local church. First, the elders are called to shepherd the flock well, not domineering over the people God has entrusted them with, but, by, but leading by example. And the passage then calls members to be subject to the elders in humility. So we're going to be looking at two things today. First, uh, what does it mean that elders are called to shepherd members? And then, what does it mean that members are called to submit to elders? I want to look at the second thing first. What does it mean that the members of a local church are called to submit to the elders of the church. Let's face it, um, there is no real concept of elders in, in our culture. Uh, there are also too few examples of good and godly authority. 
and, and, and not surprisingly, uh, most of us, we start off uh, with a wrong understanding of biblical eldership, and we, we tend to live most of our lives uh, under this wrong understanding of biblical eldership. In our culture, we have parents, we have teachers, and we have bosses. We don't really talk about uh, elders in a local church in, in the same breath. And so our experience with our parents, our teachers, and our bosses tend to shape our expectations from church elders. Let's look at each of these three, parents, teachers, and bosses. Let's start with parenting. Uh, parenting in India has, has changed dramatically over the last 20 to 25 years. Broadly speaking, I would place parents into two categories. Uh, those who did their parenting mostly before the year 2000, uh, and those who've been parenting after the millennium. So let me call them pre-millennial parents and, and post-millennial parents. Pre-millennial parents tended to over-exercise authority, and, and they tended to focus mostly on, on uh, tangible needs like education, etc. Uh, many of the pre-millennial parents uh, perhaps underappreciated the emotional needs of their children. Uh, this was very functional parenting. More deeds uh, and action, less verbal and physical expressions of love. My, my parents might be examples of pre-millennial parents. Uh, they made huge sacrifices. We come from a very lower middle class family. They made huge sacrifices in making sure that I get a good education in good schools. Uh, but I don't have a single recollection of my dad or mom hugging me uh, even once. Absolutely no recollections whatsoever. That's very functional parenting. Post-millennial parents, on the other hand, uh, are, have been predominantly absent from their children's lives because, as we all know, we've been way too busy with our careers. And when they have been present in the lives of their children, they have tended to pamper them emotionally rather than build them up. And this is mostly guilt-based parenting. When parents do spend time with their children, it's mostly just making up for lost time rather than actually parenting them. So that's that's, so we've all grown with, with mixed experiences of, uh, uh, of parents. In the Indian context, teachers uh, have also tended to focus predominantly on education. Uh, though I'm sure each of us have at least one example of a teacher who kind of broke through that barrier to build a personal relationship and really shaped us. Again, exceptions stand the rule. And then there are bosses. Well, bosses our bosses. We all have a love-hate relationship with them. Uh, this is a, a contractual relationship at the best. All bosses, uh, even good ones, let us down sometime or the other. So in one sense, we've all grown up with this uh, deeply imperfect understanding and experience of godly authority. 
And so it's not surprising at all that at some deep level, every one of us have developed some disdain for authority. Or at the very least, we have developed some indifference to authority, some coldness to any form of authority. Now, when we entered adulthood and began, began participating in the church as adults, this is the background, this is the baggage, if I may say, that we all walked in to church with. We all walked in wearing these lenses of past skewed experience with authority. These colored our understanding of good and godly biblical eldership. So when this passage and the rest of the Bible calls us to submit to elders in the local church, very few of us really get excited about the idea. I mean, this is not the kind of message where you'll hear screams of amen from, uh, from the congregation too often. In the, in the light of the baggage that, that we all carry, uh, we are all, at, to some degree or the other, very suspicious about submitting to elders. Somewhere down the line, if, if your parents had failed you in the past, at a subconscious level, you're very likely to believe that the elders in the church are also going to fail you. Uh, even those of us who do not reject, who do not reject good and godly authority of biblical elders, we make a different mistake. We often tend to treat elders as mentors of convenience. We tend to treat elders as mentors of convenience. You see, our post-millennial parents parented us when it was convenient for them. Our bosses invest in us when it is convenient for them. And so too, quite naturally, we began to treat elders in the local church as mentors of convenience. What do I mean by mentors of convenience? First, most of us, we tend to engage with elders only when we go through some kind of a challenge or crisis. A bad boss giving us a rough time in our career, a career not doing too well, a messy relationship, financial troubles. It's during times of crisis that we tend, it's only during times of crisis that we actually reach out to elders. Only in such times of trouble. Here too, we don't really reach out to elders early in the crisis. We, we do our best to fix it. And if nothing seems to work at the very last minute when there's no other way out, then we tend to reach out to, to elders. And some of us um, also have an expectation and maybe even a sense of entitlement that the elders must be there for us every time we go through a crisis. But at other times, when, when things are going well, we maintain a very careful and a very strategic distance from elders. Not too close. Not too close. We don't reach out to them enough. We don't update them enough. We're not vulnerable enough. We're not accountable enough. Or we're just indifferent to them. This is one way we treat elders as mentors of convenience. The second way we treat elders as mentors of convenience is by calling them 
to be mere life coaches rather than submitting to them as they help us in our spiritual formation. Biblically, elders are called to help us in our spiritual formation. Listen to the Apostle Paul describe this. My little children, he's referring to full-grown adults here. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Spiritual formation is the process through which Christ is formed in us so much so that we begin to live all of life on the basis of the good news of Jesus. When Christ is formed in us, we flourish in life. This needs to flow in this order, as this chart will, will show us. Elders help us in our spiritual formation, and as we are formed spiritually, we flourish in life. But in reality, most of us, we, we don't bother with the spiritual formation part. We skip to the good part. We expect and, and sometimes demand that elders help us only with life coaching, and, and we, don't, we don't want to get into the business of spiritual formation. We, we, we don't engage too much with elders on the topic of, of our spiritual formation. All we want is for them to be a life coach to help us in, in, in getting on with our life. So we turn elders into mentors of convenience by demanding that they become mere life coaches. We just want their help to deal with the problems which are just the symptoms of a deeper uh, spiritual imbalance in our hearts. We don't want to deal with what's deeper. Um, Aji and I, we've been serving uh, people in this church for, for 10 years now. And in all these 10 years, uh, we have to say that very, very few people have walked up to us and asked us if we could help them grow in their faith. Eight to nine times out of ten, people only walk up and ask for help when they're dealing with pressing life challenges. So this is one way we reduce elders into mere mentors of convenience. So in our context, when the Bible calls us to submit to elders in this passage, we must not confuse this. The Bible is not calling us to submit to elders in the sense that elders will tell us which job to take, who to marry, and all those kinds of life decisions. Not at all. That's not what God has placed elders in our life for. When the Bible is calling us to submit to elders, it is calling us to wholeheartedly submit to their labor of spiritual formation in our lives. When elders tell you to uh, be consistent in coming for Sunday worship, or they, they encourage you to plug into a small group, or they encourage you to read the Bible more consistently, or serve consistently in some way, don't dismiss them. That's their job. That's spiritual formation. How have you been viewing eldership in the local church. And so that's the first thing I wanted to draw out for us today. 
to submit to elders. When this passage, 1 Peter 5, calls us to submit to elders, this passage is calling, it means to submit to their labor of spiritual formation in us. That's the first thing. The second thing this passage is calling us to see is this. What does it mean that elders are called to shepherd members? What does that mean? Look at verses 2 to 4 in, in the same passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This passage and other passages in the New Testament, especially the pastoral epistles, spell out three things that all elders in a local church are called to do. Three things. First, elders are called to pray for the flock that God has entrusted to them. That elder should, should play, pray for the flock may, may seem pretty simple and pretty obvious, but it is quite profound. This passage is inviting us to see this beautiful relationship that exists between Christ, the chief shepherd, elders, the sub-shepherds, and members of the local church. So when Peter calls Christ the chief shepherd, he is also reminding elders that they are merely sub-shepherds. So elders who are merely sub-shepherds must be absolutely dependent on Christ, the chief shepherd, as they shepherd his flock. And an elder's dependence on Christ is truly expressed only in prayer. Only in deep dependence in prayer. There's a simple reason for this. You see, elders are as frail and as weak and as fallible and as desperately in need of grace as every other member of the church. And so elders must pray for themselves and for the flock. When the Apostle Paul, for example, when he gathered the elders of the church at Ephesus to instruct them, this is what he said, speaking to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And that's the first thing that elders need to do. They need to pray for themselves. And they need to pray for the flock. The second thing the Bible calls elders to do in shepherding the flock is to preach and teach God's word and to live God's word as examples and to guide people in living God's word. We see this displayed in the early church. As the early church began to grow, organizing the church became very complex. So the elders of the church, the 12 apostles at that point in time, they appointed deacons to help them with administrative tasks, freeing up the elders, freeing up the 12 apostles to focus on two key things. 
Acts chapter 6 verse 4. And the apostle said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word of God or, or the Bible whose central message is the good news of Jesus governs the ministry of the word of elders. Elders must teach and must only teach God's word. If you remember in the earlier sermons, we've talked about uh, the five solas as, our prime, as a primary doctrine. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in scripture alone, the Bible alone, for the glory of God alone. And this forms the guardrails of what the elders are to preach and teach. Elders in a local church must never step out of the guardrails given to us by the five solas. They must never step out of the guardrails of the word of God. And within these guardrails of the word of God, elders must be both proactive and reactive in teaching God's word, and elders must both, must both encourage and lovingly rebuke members of the church in preaching God's word. Two things. Uh, they must be both proactive and reactive, and they must both, both encourage and lovingly rebuke members in teaching God's word. I'm going to quickly unpack each of these four. First, proactive and reactive. So this sermon series is proactive teaching of God's word. We are laying some good gospel foundations about the doctrine of the church. It's a good example of proactive teaching, discipling the congregation, strengthening them in faith through the pre preaching of God's word. But the Bible also calls us to be reactive in teaching God's word. Reactive teaching is guarding the members of the church against false doctrines. And, and, and uh, false doctrines and false teachers. If you haven't noticed already, the internet is full of them. Internet preachers preaching what you want to hear. Preaching not God's word, preaching what you want to hear. Twisting the message of the gospel so that we can hear what culture is shaping us to be. And the apostle Paul warned us of this. In Acts chapter 20, 29 to 30, he says, I know that after my de departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will men arise speaking twisted things to draw disciples away after them. Elders in a local church must protect the flock from the wolves of false teaching. So proactive and reactive. Second, elders must also both encourage and lovingly rebuke members in teaching God's word. That elders must encourage and strengthen and build up people in God's word, again, is obvious. But the Bible also calls us, calls elders, to gently rebuke the flock when needed so as to build them up in the faith. The New Testament has a few books classified as the pastoral epistles. Um, 1 Timothy uh, 1 and 2 uh, and, and Titus. Timothy 1 and 2 and, and Titus are, are some examples. And this portion of the Bible gives us most of the instructions on elders and deacons. 
we're actually going to be spending three weeks on this topic of elders and deacons, this being the first. We're going to spend two more weeks on this as part of this uh, of the series. And in the pastoral epistles, on at least five different occasions, these are not long chapters, these are not big books, these are short books, short chapters. In those short chapters, on at least five different occasions, the pastoral epistles call elders to lovingly rebuke members in order to help them grow in Christ. Listen to Paul's exhortation to Timothy, who was an elder at the church in Ephesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As some elders only want to encourage. They're afraid of rebuking people. Because if you rebuke people, you know what happens. They don't like you. They don't like you at all. So, so, so some elders only encourage. This is wrong. Other elders, swing to the other extreme, they only rebuke. And this is wrong too. We need a good, healthy balance. The Bible calls us to a good, healthy balance of both encouraging and rebuke, both in love, both to build up people in their faith. Next, elders are not only to preach and teach God's word, they are also to live out God's word as examples. Elders must walk the talk. They must live the word of God that they teach and preach. Look at this same passage we're looking at, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders are elders not only when they stand behind the pulpit. Elders are elders not only on Sundays. Elders are elders on the basis of how they lead their lives 24 by 7, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And so the Bible calls members to look at the lives of elders and to imitate it. Imitate it only to the extent they are walking in line with the truth of God's word. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Don't imitate their flaws. Imitate their faith. So elders pray. Elders teach, preach and teach God's word. Live what they teach. And it is from this place that they lovingly shepherd others. They walk alongside them. As Christ, our good shepherd, coming alongside tenderly, knowing that they are as weak as every member in the congregation, both of us needing the grace of God. They walk, do life with them, walk with them side by side, lovingly, together, growing in Christ. So they pray, they teach and preach, living God's word, guiding others to live in God's word. There's a third important function that elders play, and we're going to look at that next week. Very important function. Uh, I'm kind of saving that for, for the next week. For today, allow me to draw a few practical applications and then leave you with one closing thought. Uh, very simple practical applications. I've clarified what submission to elders really means. It does not mean getting their permission for your life decisions. You're definitely not bound to do that. 
submitting to elders does not mean you go tell them that this is a problem I have, and they tell you, okay, this is your problem, this is what you do, one, two, three, you do those things. That is not the role of biblical elders. So some of you who might have some kind of a fear or a suspicion of authority, I, I, need, I need to make this absolute, absolutely clear. But it's not the goal of, the role of elders is not to make your life decisions for you. So that's not what it means. But it does mean wholeheartedly submitting to the labor of elders for your spiritual formation. So the next time an elder walks up to you and, and asks you, looks you in the eye and asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Don't run away from church. Don't reach out to elders only when you have a life problem. Reach out to them intentionally and, and frequently and ask them, how, how can I grow in my faith? How can I grow in living my faith? Or if an elder lovingly rebukes you or calls you out on some aspect of character or spiritual growth, please do consider what he is trying to tell you. Don't take offense at the loving rebuke and, and sulk for a few months. Let me close with, with one last thought. Let's look at this passage again, the second part of the passage from 1 Peter that we're looking at this morning. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Hear me here. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This verse, you know, we all love Instagrammable verses. We love verses that we can pick up and, you know, tweet or put on Instagram. So God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. It's a, it's a very instra Instagrammable verse. And we tend to look at only that in isolation. This verse, that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud, is not a gentle verse. It is written in a very specific context. In fact, this, this sentence is part of one verse that we looked at in the passage. Verse 5. In the context of verse 5 in this passage, this verse, this verse specifically means that God gives grace to members who submit to, the, to their work of, to the elders' work of spiritual formation in them. Let me repeat that. God gives grace to members who submit to the elders' work of spiritual formation in them. And it also specifically means that God opposes those who are proud and do not submit to the elders' work of spiritual formation in them. But why? Why? I'm sure that's a question every one of you have wrestled with, as I have, when it comes to submission. Why is God placing such an emphasis on submission? If you read the book of Hebrews... The book of Hebrews makes it absolutely clear that Christ himself is the only high priest that we have. There is no other intermediary between man and God. Only Christ, Christ alone. He is the, he is the ultimate chief shepherd. There is no other intermediary. And there is no hierarchy among God's people. 
We are all elders, our members. We are all justified by the finished work of Christ on the cross. So we are all on the same platform, level playing field, all of us fully justified, not by what we've done, not by our Bible knowledge, not by how many hours we pray, not by how much we serve, but by what Christ did for us on the cross in laying his life down. If all of us have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, why is the Bible placing so much emphasis on submission? Why must members submit to elders if we've all been equally clothed with the righteousness of Christ? It's a simple answer. There's a very simple answer to the question, but it is a profound answer. God wants every believer to grow more and more into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. There are no exceptions. God's heart longs, his heart yearns for every single one of us to grow in how Christ-like we are. And one of the most beautiful aspects of the nature of Christ, of the nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is his absolute submission to his heavenly Father. Although God the Father and God the Son are absolutely equal in every way, the Son joyfully submitted to the Father in every way. Jesus came to do the Father's will. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus said, I do nothing by myself. I do only what I see the Father doing. That's John chapter 5, verses 19 and 30. The works of Jesus were those that the Father gave him to finish. He initiated no work on his own, even though he was absolutely equal to the Father. That's John chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus was sent by the Father. He came in obedience. John chapter 5, verse 37. Jesus came in the name of the Father. He, does not, he did not come in his own name. He did not come in his own authority. He came in the name of the Father. John chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus' teaching was not from himself, but it came from the Father. These are words of Jesus. This is Jesus testifying to this. John chapter 7, verse 18. Jesus spoke only what the Father taught him. John chapter 8, verses 26, 28, and 38. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. John chapter 8, verse 29. And finally, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The entire life of Jesus Christ was a life of submission. How can we grow in Christ-likeness if we do not grow in submission?
meaningful membership in the local church with members submitting to elders and with elders submitting to one another, we're going to look at that next week, is God's blueprint to help every one of us grow in Christ-likeness. Let me repeat that. Meaningful membership in a local church with members submitting to elders and with elders submitting to one another is God's blueprint to help every one of us grow in Christ-likeness. In submitting to elders who are under shepherds, you are submitting to Christ who is the chief shepherd. This morning as we move into communion, I want to invite us uh, to pause and to invite God's healing into every instance in your life where authority has either been abused or it has been abandoned. Two errors. Maybe some of us have had difficult childhoods, like, like I, what I had. Maybe the scars of that are still fresh. Maybe you've, not, you've never had a good father figure in your life. In ways that you do not understand, you're grieving. In ways you do not understand, you're hurting within. Your entire life is, is held captive by the lack of a good father figure. Maybe some of you have been hurt in church. And maybe some of you have been hurt in this church. Maybe I have hurt some of you. It's real. It's not in the realm of possibility, it's in the realm of certainty. There's no perfect authority except Christ. Imperfect authority in our lives does not mean we reject authority. Imperfect authority means we're given another window to experience an intimacy with Christ. So the hurt that you're carrying, the hurt I'm carrying too, this hurt invites us to a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the man of You could spend the next 25 years of your life running away from good and godly authority. I know people who've done that. You could spend, you could waste the next 25 years of your life running away from good godly authority. Or you can repent, grieve the fact that you've been sinned against, find grace and strength in Jesus through communion. And you can ask him for grace. You can invite him into your heart, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if this is your very first time in a church. You can invite him to come and, and love you with a love that you've never experienced before. To come and be the father you never had. To come and be the pastor you never had. Invite him. Invite him. Father, we are, uh, we are painfully reminded this morning that um, our parents are imperfect, 
Uh, our churches are imperfect. Our pastors are imperfect. Our bosses are imperfect. And we are imperfect. But we are your bride. Those of you, those of us who believe in you, your church, we are your bride. And you are working on your bride, sanctifying your bride, that you might present us to yourselves, holy and spotless, without blemish, radiant and beautiful. So you are working in us. And this morning we pray. Lord, deepen your work in us today, Lord. In this, in this moment, as your spirit is leading us to grieve and to repent, work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to experience, receive healing for the wounds we carry, for the deep wounds that fester. Help us to receive healing and help us, Lord, to move into the beautiful design of headship and submission that you have for us in the family, in the biological family, and in the spiritual family, the church. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.